Hey, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And this week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about Native American culture in museum collections. University of California Davis art history professor Hagnar Wattenpah researches visual cultures of the Middle East, including architectural preservation and cultural heritage. In this lecture, she focuses on specific Native American items within museum collections and explores repatriation efforts. Her lecture begins after this. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, and welcome to week nine of our course, Art, Architecture, and Human Rights. We're still in our module three, which is about museums and current debates. Uh, So far, we've looked at a number of issues having to do with museums today, uh, including the history of the Universal Art Museum. We talked about the ethics of collection, especially of historical materials. We looked at some of the oldest restitution claims and discussions, like the Parthenon marbles. We talked about the problem of antiquities that have been looted in recent years and that end up in public museums. And we've talked about calls to decolonize the museum. Today, we're going to uh, take up a special case Um, Native American cultural heritage, uh, primarily in the United States and Canada for a little bit. Um, And as always, we approach these issues from the point of view of art history, museum studies, human rights. There are many other ways of approaching these issues. So first, a reminder that wherever we are in the Americas, we are always on Native land. If you go to this uh, wonderful website, you can put in your zip code and you can discover a native map of your area. You can figure out where you are from a native perspective. And here we are, this is the Bay Area, and we are somewhere over here on the historic territory of the Patwin people. So this uh, raises the question of how did the state that we live in, uh, California and the United States, come to be in these areas? What is the history of Native American presence in the past and in the present? What are the painful histories of Native American dispossession, settler colonialism, acquisition of the land, erasure of culture, displacing peoples? Treaties made and broken, and genocide, as in the words of Gavin Newsom, our governor, who recognized formally in 2019 um, that Native Americans in California had been subjected to genocide. And it's important to use the right words, though the federal government does not always use this word. So we have a, a long and painful history when it comes to talking about Native American objects in the museum, and we'll try to unpack that history. So what are we talking about when we talk about Native American objects? As an example, I'm showing you a storage box made by a Tlingit artist in present-day Alaska. 
today at the Metropolitan Museum of Art made in the late 19th century. In general, a lot of the case studies that we're interested in uh, relate to objects that were not made for purchase by outsiders and not made to be displayed as art in museums. They were objects like the storage box that was made for everyday use by specific individuals and families. Some of the objects we're going to see were sacred objects used in specific rituals and activities in specific circumstances and not always meant to be seen by just anyone. So these are objects that raise very um, specific kind of issues. How were they collected? As uh, you're reading um, the article by Berlow and Phillips uh, uh, details, the vast majority of Native American objects in private and public collections today are the legacy of the high period of colonialism that lasted from about 1830 to 1930. So in about 100 years, an enormous amount of Native American cultural heritage um, was uh, collected through various means um, and concentrated in public collections and private hands. Um, Native American objects were not only created in one period of time and frozen in space. Uh, frozen in time. Throughout this period, Native Americans continued to create new kinds of objects, incorporating ideas, influences, motifs, reactions to the kinds of uh, experiences that they had. This beaded bag from the late 19th century, today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, uh, was made by a group of Lakota um, probably in North Dakota in the United States and probably when this community was forced to live on a reservation. So we're seeing, I just want to make the point that when we're talking about Native American objects, we're talking about a continued tradition that is constantly renewed, constantly changes, not frozen in time. But of course the impression of frozen in time is the impression that you get in the kinds of traditional museum displays of Native American objects. For example, I'm showing you the Northwest Coast Hall of the American Museum of Natural History in New York, an institution we've talked about in the past when we talked about calls to decolonize the museum. So in the early 20th century, the cultural heritage of Northwest Coast Native communities was presented very much in displays like this, where a number of different objects, here we're seeing totem poles, we're seeing an amazing canoe, we're seeing masks and objects of everyday use in glass cabinets. All of these objects are united and put together in one exhibition. Of course, in the original communities, these objects would not be seen together in this particular way. The totem poles would be part of architectural settings. The canoe would be used as a canoe. And everyday objects would be used as part of everyday life. And masks would be used by specific kinds of individuals during specific ceremonies. 
So they, well, putting all of these together in a museum display is a very modern way of representing these objects and of making these objects visible to a large number of people in a way that their makers did not intend and maybe never even imagined. Another point that your reading makes is that um, the collection of Native American materials during the high period of colonialism was just astonishing in its scale. So, for example, this is again Berlo and Phillips. Between 1879 and 1885, the Smithsonian Institution collected over 6,500 pottery vessels made by Pueblo women from Acoma and Zuni, which are villages of just a few hundred inhabitants. So these institutions are collecting enormous amounts of materials. And some of these modes of collections are more coercive than others, as we're going to see. Uh, the discipline, what is the, the type of knowledge, the academic discipline, that is primarily involved in the collection of Native American objects? In this uh, early period, late 19th, early 20th century, it is primarily anthropologists and the discipline of anthropology that is interested in learning about, studying, and recording Native American cultures. On the screen is Professor Franz Boas, known as the father of American anthropology. He studied many Native American cultures, and I'm showing you a scene from his book on the um, Coaquitl Indians, also a Northwest Coast group, with these wonderful illustrations. Um, at the same time, as Franz Boas was interested in studying the culture and anthropology of Native American groups, he was also part of a movement in anthropology to, to take, analyze, and study human remains, especially skulls. So we've talked before about the role of um, racial thinking, eugenics, and the phenomenon of the collection of human remains from a variety of groups um, concentrated in institutions like the Smithsonian or the um, American Museum of Natural History and other places as well, where these human remains, these ancestors, were treated like scientific specimens, things to be studied. So uh, Franz Boas, uh, father of American anthropology, analyzed over 1,300 skulls. That is an incredibly large number. So while anthropologists were busy collecting materials from Native American communities, both um, produced objects, what we might call works of art, and human remains, they were also busy uh, projecting a vision of a Native American history. You may have already seen this image. This is a very well-known um, sculpture by James Frazier uh, called The End of the Trail, and today in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Today, um, uh, this... Um, Sculpture is part of a series of productions by uh, Euro-Americans that depict uh, Native American culture as tired, exhausted, 
literally at the end of the trail, towards the end of their natural existence. Now, this was part of representing Native American groups as being part of the past, not part of the present, and certainly not part of the future. So let's think of the implications of this kind of representation. And here I want to quote Jeffrey Gibson, who is a Native American artist, one of a group of Native American artists and intellectuals who were invited to comment on artworks in, um, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And he, in this quote, discusses what it felt like to see this representation of Native Americans as a child. He says... At the time, I saw it as an image of a shamed, defeated Indian, and I wondered if this was really how the rest of the world viewed us. So let's, let's think about this for a moment, and let's think what these kinds of um, narratives, these kinds of representations, what are the effects that they have, um, especially on the groups that are purportedly being represented. What does it mean to be told you don't exist, or you are almost extinct. And he goes on to discuss how um, these kinds of representations have been reclaimed by Native American groups as a symbol of resilience and strength. Another way in which um, Native American culture was erased at the very moment when these objects were being collected is, of course, the Indian boarding school movement. And I'm showing you an image that is um, very difficult to see. It is from the personal papers of a man who was a proponent of the Indian residential school system. And this image is preserved in his archives at uh, Yale University. So it's a combination of two photos of before and after before and after photos are a technique that we use in order to show a transformation. Something has been transformed. In this case, a person is purportedly, uh, has purportedly been transformed. The caption says, Tom Torlino, Navajo, before and after. The before image shows this man taken in 1882 when he just arrived at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And the next image shows him, the same man, in a very different way. His appearance has changed, his clothing has changed, his hair and accoutrements have changed, and his facial expression has changed as well. So what has happened here? The Indian boarding school movement and in Canada, the Indian residential school movement uh, were a system of schools throughout the United States and Canada. Many of them were run by um, uh, uh, religious organizations and charitable organizations. They saw it as their mission to take in uh, Native American young people and to, quote-unquote, improve them through education, to transform them from what they perceived as being savages, these were the words that they used, and turning them into Americans. So the boarding school movement was one of the technologies used for child transfer, for genocide. Many of these schools took their students 
very far from their communities of origin. These young people were separated from their families. They had very little access to them. They were forbidden from speaking their original uh, languages or their names. Many of their names were changed. They were expected to adopt uh, forms of Christianity and to become Americans and to integrate American society shorn from their Native American culture, which was seen as an impediment. And these Indian boarding schools were places where of coercion, places where uh, the um, Native children were often put to work, where there was, uh, it's documented that there was a great deal of abuse, and the mortality rate of the children was quite high. These are issues that are now being discussed more and more. Um, they have been discussed in Canada much more than in the United States. But just a, a couple of years ago, the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland, who is, of course, a Native American herself, announced an initiative to investigate the boarding school systems and to really listen to the stories of survivors and to understand how the boarding school system was a, a machinery for erasing culture. What is important for us to understand is that these processes for erasing Native American culture were going on at the same time as processes of collecting Native American culture, of integrating Native American objects into museums, and studying Native American societies. So I think it's very important for us who are interested in culture and human rights to see how these processes are unfolding at the same time and to really question what the links are. Did Native Americans sort of accept all of these? Um, of course, they exercised their own agency in figuring out how they were going to counter these events, um, what decisions they were going to make, and how they were going to resist. And um, I want to take a special case of the Zuni Pueblo to discuss how at least one Native American group were, uh, embarked on a whole campaign to, um, to have returned their most important religious objects. So what I'm showing you on the screen is an, ahu, an, an, ahaya, an ahayuda, commonly called a war god, uh, from Zuni Pueblo in present-day New Mexico in the United States. The, um, what are the Aha Yudas? They are uh, representations of twin gods. They are often carved from wood. They are cylindrical. And they feature a stylized face, torso, and hands. They, in addition to the carved wooden uh, section, there may be a number of other associated objects and offerings attached to them as we see in this, in this drawing. The um, war gods are expected to live in special shrines that are located in various places 
in the Zuni homeland. And this is one of those shrines photographed around 1886. Each year, the religious leaders of the Zuni create images of the twin war gods, and they place them at one of these shrines. Every year, the new Ahayuda replace existing ones. The retired, quote-unquote, Ahayudas are placed in a separate piles with other retired images. So here we're seeing the current war gods in the front, and the retired ones, the ones that have completed their year of activity, are placed in the back of the shrine, but they have to remain there. All the images, from the Zuni perspective, all the images must remain as an integral part of the shrine. The retired images are meant to gradually disintegrate and return to the earth. Once an image is installed at a shrine, no one has the authority to remove them. Zuni religious leaders believe that to remove any of these objects from their place will unleash their powers and can be dangerous for humanity as a whole. From the Zuni perspective as well, the creative process of the priests uh, is a process that bestows spiritual life on the formerly inanimate materials of which these objects are made. So in other words, once they have been activated by the priests, these images are considered to be sentient beings. They are gods. Let's keep this concept in mind. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Um, in the period of high colonialism, um, many of these old and new uh, war gods ended up being collected by various individuals through various means, and many of them have ended up over the course of the 20th century at various private and public collections. I'm showing you an image from the Smithsonian Anthropological Archives where we see a war god exhibited in Washington, D.C. in 1905 with associated objects. So here, the image is treated like a work of art or an anthropological artifact. It is shown in a glass case in a museum and offered up for view to be seen and appreciated by visitors. The idea here that objects like this are objects that we study to learn about their, um, the communities that made them. We might admire the way they were created. We might appreciate their aesthetic qualities. Uh, we might understand them as historical documents, as inspiration for reflection or for artistic practice 
But in this model, in this understanding, such objects are inanimate objects. They are maybe works of art. Okay, so two very different ways of conceptualizing what we're seeing. One of the, um, what is most remarkable about uh, the, um, uh, this um, um, phenomenon is that the Zuni leaders uh, were, uh, their drive, their campaign to find and reclaim and bring back the war gods constitutes the most comprehensive documented effort by a Native American group to bring back their religious objects before 1990, where something important happens that we're going to talk about in a second. So uh, this image shows the very first meeting in 1978 between officials of the Zuni Pueblo who traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with officials of the Smithsonian Institution where they uh, explained to the curators uh, what their perspective was on these um, objects, and uh, they originated, they instituted a series of discussions, and nine very long years later, the war gods were brought back to the Zuni Pueblo. So this happened way before uh, a major... Uh, federal legislation that was passed in 1990 that uh, now uh, is one of the most important pieces of legislation uh, about Native American objects. This is NAGPRA. So now we're in 1990. Um, Generations of activists, um, Native American leaders, Um, anthropologists and other people invested in Native American rights, uh, along with uh, many politicians involved, uh, ended up, culminated in the passage of NAGPRA, which um, in many ways is not perfect, but it was a major landmark um, legislation at the time. So in short, what does NAGPRA say? What does does NAGPRA require? Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act. It requires federal agencies and museums or collections that receive federal funding to inventory ancestor remains, objects associated with graves, and certain items of cultural patrimony and to make those inventories publicly accessible. It creates a framework for Native Americans and institutions regarding repatriation. It protects burials from further disturbance. It requires tribes to be consulted. It criminalizes illegal trafficking. So this is a lot. We're not going to cover all of it. In addition to NAGPRA, which is federal law, uh, many states have their own laws. So in California, we have Cal-NAGPRA. And so NAGPRA is human rights law. It is cultural heritage law. It is about cultural rights, religious rights. It's really very important uh, legislation. The Smithsonian Institution itself has sort of its own uh, restitution um, uh, um, situation, 
centered on the National Museum of the American Indian, which was established in 1989 as part of the Smithsonian Institution. And a, muse a new museum was built on the National Mall, uh, where it still is. It's a wonderful institution, and part of their task is the repatriation of collections in the care of the Smithsonian. So um, UC Davis is also involved at Na with NAGPRA because we receive federal funding. And um, so you can learn all about um, the NAGPRA and repatriation at UC Davis through a dedicated website. Um, UC Davis also had about 500 ancestors in the university's collection. Many of these ancestors were uh, excavated in California at sites nearby as part of campaigns of salvage archaeology, and they were deposited in the university. Um, in the last few years, uh, UC Davis has made enormous advances at engaging with the um, appropriate Native American groups, has repatriated many of these ancestors, and has uh, made uh, headway with, the, um, with consultation about what to do with many of the others. It's an enormously uh, bureaucratic, difficult, and long process, but one of the things that I'm proud to say is that UC Davis is actually one of the better actors. Um, so what does it mean for Native American communities to be able to have their ancestors back? So let's listen um, to um, this uh, voice by um, you know, Rex Buck Jr. And he says, these remains that we're talking about, their work is done. They've gone through the schooling. They've taught many people different things. Their time is done. They need to go back to the ground so that this ground can live like it needs to live and their spirit can continue on where it needs to be. So it's, it's incredibly important for communities to have their ancestors back. But has NACPRA been perfect? It has actually not been perfect at all. And just in the last couple of weeks, ProPublica, the um, uh, organization that supports investigative journalism, just published a series of very sobering reports about the state of NAGPRA uh, restitution. And as of January 2023, the remains of more than 110,000 Native Americans reside in the collections of more than six hundred institutions across the United States. Let that number sink in for a moment. Topping the list is the University of California, Berkeley, our flagship, the home of the free speech movement, with the remains of at least 9,075 Native Americans. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of families torn apart. So despite the fact that NACPRA was a huge landmark, it was a huge step forward, as we have seen in so many situations in this class when we talk about human rights advances, legislation in and of itself is not enough. It has to be implemented. And for the implementation, you need another constellation of sources. 
you need cooperation of institutions, but also the press, also activists, also all of the stakeholders, the tribes, the institutions, professors. And it's not easy. Um, there has been a lot of resistance to NAGPRA, including, and this is another story from the University of California, uh, situations when restitution is resisted in the name of science. So there was a landmark uh, lawsuit, White versus University of California, where Professor Tim White and a group of other uh, professors sued the university where they work in order to stop the repatriation of human remains. The situation was that in 1976, on the campus of UC San Diego, when they were excavating an area in order to build the home of the chancellor, they found um, two 9,000-year-old skeletons. And so um, uh, they had made arrangements, the university had made arrangements to return these human remains to a Native American organization. And um, that's when the scientists, the professors, sued because, to them, these human remains are scientific specimens. They have, they have value to science. They need to be studied. And if they are returned to the community and reburied or uh, somehow removed from the sphere of science, removed from the lab, we will lose this knowledge. And so this was another situation where somebody's ancestor is seen by another as a scientific object, an object of science. So this um, uh, disagreement played out in court, uh, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court of California, uh, where the uh, dispute ended um, finding in favor of uh, restitution. So 1976, the ancestors that are, are found. 2016, the ancestors go home. I mean, how many years is that? 40? So this is a long time, really long time. And so this is the, these delays are what cause a lot of frustration and uh, do not contribute to creating trust. Um, and, you know, moving forward... Um, the University of California especially has mandated that you know, we do have to comply with NAGPRA. It is federal law. The chancellor of Berkeley has apologized to Native American communities. Um, but apologies are wonderful, but action, I think, is where um, it would be really meaningful. So would, even though it is not perfect, NAGPRA applies to the United States. NACPRA does not apply to other jurisdictions outside of the United States. So um, many institutions in other countries also have taken, in the high period of colonialism or since then, have taken a great deal of interest in Native American objects, Native American cultural heritage. And there is a Zuni war god who currently is held in uh, the Quai Branly Museum in Paris, in France. This is a museum that uh, has a wonderful collection of many important artifacts, 
including a large collection of Native American uh, materials, what they call Amérindiens. And in this um, uh, photograph, we see uh, the, uh, the god being visited by the Zuni elder and scholar Octavius Sotewa, along with the anthropologist Chip Caldwell, who is the author of a really great book about um, restitution of Native American remains. And so they, these two Americans um, visited the war god, and they meet, they're meeting in this photograph with officials from the Kebranli Museum. Um, and um, the Zunis uh, communicated their, their view that uh, this is not the right place for the god. This is not a work of art. This, the, the god needs to return to the right place on the Zuni Pueblo. And the response of the officials of the Kebranli Museum was, but this is the property of the French state. Uh, Kebranli is a French state uh, institution. So here is yet another way of looking at these materials as objects that can be owned, as objects that can be the property of an individual or a state. So nothing could be more opposite from the Zuni view of what these objects are. They, are, they cannot be owned. They, if anything, they are owned communally by the Zunis, and they cannot be moved. And so here is uh, a quote from uh, Octavia Soatewa, the Zuni scholar. Um, this was in an interview he gave to the New York Times where he says, quote, we believe if you listen to us about the power these objects have to our community, that these are examples of sacred objects, of communally owned objects, then museums will consider sending them back. So, so far, Kebranli has not um, uh, taken uh, this uh, argument to heart, but we see here this um, continuous engagement by Zuni elders with various, various uh, museums and other institutions in a process of creating dialogue in a very non-confrontational way, which is the ethics of, uh, of Zuni behavior, to communicate your point of view, to put yourself in the other person's shoes, and to create um, a collaborative relationship rather than start with litigation. Um, NAGPRA has not been <laughs> completely um, negative. There have been many positive effects of NAGPRA. Many ancestors have been returned and are now at peace. Um, many uh, objects have been returned uh, to their communities. Uh, there, there has been the, so here we see uh, Albion College uh, returning uh, another uh, Zuni war god that had come into their possession, and so they've, they've returned it. 2018, it's taken a little while, but it has happened. Uh, NAGPRA has also started an era where museum professionals have worked very hard, at least some of them, to uh, reimagine their relationship with Native American communities, not as communities from where you extract things like objects for your collection, but as communities with whom you have uh, continued engagement, continued programs of cooperation for mutual benefit. Even the American Museum of Natural History in New York 
renovated recently their Northwest Coast Hall. I mean, they still have totem poles. They still have the canoe. It's now displayed in a different way. But they've done uh, this renovation in consultation with Native American advisors. And there, there's been some room for Native American groups to share their perspectives and their way of thinking about these objects. So steps are being taken, though there's many, there are many issues still to be resolved. But now I want us to, um, to think about a slightly different issue, and that is the role that the contemporary art and contemporary artists have to play or can play in uh, the, the issue of Native American art, Native American cultural heritage moving forward. And here it's very important for us to recognize that Native American artists are incredibly diverse. They do incredibly diverse kind of work. They, are, they do work that go, looks uh, towards tradition, and they do work, they produce artwork that is completely within the uh, ideas, the styles of contemporary art. So what I'm showing you on the screen is a work, a painting by George Morrison from the 1960s. George Morrison was a Native American who lived in New York and was part of abstract expressionism. So Jackson Pollock, um, those people, this uh, artist was part of that movement. So um, we shouldn't have a stereotype that Native American artists are going to do certain kinds of things. They do all kinds of things. Here's another example. Um, Jeffrey Varegi is an artist um, uh, who is from the area around Seattle. Uh, this is a, a, a digital print that represent Neil's, represents Neil Armstrong, the astronaut. Um, it's a digital print that uses the distinctive Northwest Coast form line style. But uh, Jeffrey Varegi is very interested in um, science fiction, space exploration, futurism. He's very interested in superheroes, in Star Trek. And so here we have a completely different interpretation of the way in which Native American uh, traditional styles can become an inspiration for producing things that are completely new and completely unexpected. And finally, um, with all uh, human rights campaigns and especially cultural rights, we always need ways to keep focusing on the future and on the positive goals that we all have for cultural rights for all. So I want to leave you with this image. This is a totem pole created in 2017 by the contemporary artist from the Haida Nation, James Hart. He calls this the Reconciliation Pole. And it was erected on the campus of the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, in Canada, following a process of truth and reconciliation that took place in Canada, especially having to do with the legacy of the residential school system. And this pole, uh, newly carved, presents the history of indigenous people in Canada before, during, and after 
the residential school era and reflects on the painful histories of the past, but also the possibility of building something new in the future, anchored in the history of the moment, but informed with the baggage of the past. So I just want to leave you with this wonderful image that suggests that art, cultural heritage, artistic practice has a tremendous role to play in these human rights struggles moving forward. And the last slide with the bibliography. Anyone has any questions? Go ahead. Oh, hold on. Alex has to. Supreme Court, and I'm wondering, can they revisit that? Which now, case? The case uh, from, let's see, oh, from uh, UC San Diego. Oh, UC San Diego did go to California Supreme Court, and um, the professors did not prevail. Yes, so that was a win for the Indian community, and so the ancestors returned to the communities. Um, But uh, it's interesting because some of the coverage of that case um, took sort of, it was very sympathetic to the position of the professors about, you know, this is really not good for science. So you really have to balance the interests of science with human rights. Um, Using humans, human remains for medical experimentation and science has a very bad history, not just in Germany, but also in the United States. So it's a very painful past that I think we don't need to go back to. But I have to imagine that there are ways of collaborating with the Native community to figure out, okay, they're interested in science too. Comment. I something I thought about was it really is there's a foundational issue of disrespect for the indigenous peoples of this nation that is the real problem. That you know when you look at the schools and how they wanted to correct them basically you know they took the children and did all those horrific things in the name of what you know they it was just horrible and understanding. It's the same thing with uh, slavery. You know, if you don't identify that human being as a human being, you're not going to respect them or their property or their culture or their heritage. I feel like, I don't know, I guess there's a lot going on with that now, but I feel like there needs to be more. Well, we're in the middle of a period of change where a lot of issues are now part of the discussion. And that's great, but it doesn't mean that everything has been resolved in the best possible way. I think this is the moment where we need more attention, more vigilance, more listening to all the parties and all the perspectives. And maybe we can take some inspiration from the Zuni elders, which is like listen to the perspective of the other person. And um, maybe you'll learn something. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's really difficult, and uh, it can be really frustrating when you have to wait 40, um, 40 years. 
that's a really long term. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Any other questions? Go ahead. Um, so other than the apology by the Chancellor from Berkeley, have they given a reason why they won't return any of the bodies? Um, you can read the apology in full in the ProPublica website. Um, uh, I probably shouldn't attempt to summarize it. It's very carefully worded. But um, it points to the future, and it promises that Berkeley will take steps to correct the um, bad past. Um, so like all apologies and promises, you know, it, it's great. But then, you know, it's been 33 years since NACPRA. There's lots of really smart people at Berkeley. I think they can do this. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay. I will see you on Wednesday. Are you interested in learning more about U.S. history? Check out American History TV, either on our website at c-span.org slash ahtv or live on C-SPAN 2 every weekend from 8 a.m. Saturday through 8 a.m. Sunday. Explore our nation's past with American History TV.